All right, it's time to take out our Bibles together. If you will, turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Mark chapter 6 this morning. We'll be looking at the first six verses of that chapter. Mark 6, 1 through 6. Now, how many times have we seen this story in the local paper, in the Adair Progress or Community Voice or ColumbiaMagazine.com? Local boy makes good. Local girl finds success. A story about someone from here who's gone and done something significant or important or influential in the world. We love stories like this because they make us feel proud of where we live, right? We're proud to be from the same place as someone who went and did something like that. We're proud to honor them and we're proud to be their hometown. Well, can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus himself was from your hometown? Wouldn't you feel special about that? Wouldn't you be proud to be from that place? And what would you do when Jesus came back, when he came back home for a visit? What would you do? Would you roll out the red carpet for him? Would you try to throw him a a big party and make sure that he had a wonderful meal with all his favorite foods and all all kinds of people surrounding him and loving him and supporting him? Wouldn't you be happy when he came home to visit? Well, you might be surprised to know that is emphatically not what happened when Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth for a visit. And that is where we're at in the text that we come to today. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it together. This is God's word. Mark writes, He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So set the scene here. Jesus comes to his hometown for a visit, his hometown of Nazareth. And being a devoted and obedient Jew and a follower of God, he attends synagogue. Because that's what he does every Saturday. He attends synagogue every Saturday. Luke chapter 4 actually tells us this was his custom. It was Jesus' custom every week to attend the weekly worship gathering of God's people. Jesus made it a priority every single week to attend the weekly worship gathering of God's people. But that's not the point of the passage today. We see that he returns to his hometown, not just as a a local boy home to visit family, but he returns as a rabbi. Because if you notice in verse 1, his disciples followed with him. His disciples came on this trip. So he comes home for a visit, but his disciples are coming with him. And so he returns 
as a rabbi, and as he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, the local synagogue is happy to have a guest speaker. They're happy to have a guest speaker, especially one who is from there, who grew up there. And so everyone's thinking, how nice this is. How pleasant for everyone there to have this local boy who's returned home, and now he's a teacher, and he's going to be the guest speaker at synagogue today. But then he starts teaching. And as people listen, verse 2 says, they were astonished. Now we know from other parts in the Gospels that when people heard Jesus, it didn't matter where they were from, when people heard Jesus, they would say things like, we've never heard anything like this. We've never heard anything like this. But especially here, where the people know him. They say, how does he have this knowledge? He didn't go to study under one of the Pharisees. We know that. We know he didn't go study formally. How does he have this knowledge? How does he know these things? And they had been hearing reports, apparently, of him doing miracles. How did these miracles happen? How does he have the power? Who gave him this power to do these miracles? And it says in verse 3 that his ministry offended them. They took offense at him. His ministry offended them. There in verse 3, they say, is not this the carpenter? This is, this is the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon. Are not his sisters here with us? Small detail, Jesus did indeed have sisters. They're not spoken of very often at all, but he did have them. But they were offended because they knew this guy. We've watched him grow up. People thinking, I remember when this kid was going through puberty. We, we know his family. That we, we know they're nothing special. You're nothing special. You're a carpenter. You're the son of a carpenter. We know your mom. We know your siblings. Who are you? And they were offended. Now, now why offense? Why were they offended instead of welcoming, instead of celebrating this local boy who comes home and teaches these things? Well, think about it. Think about it. This boy, whom they had watched grow up, is now convicting them of sin. This boy, whom they had watched grow up, is now making them uncomfortable and confronting them with the truth of God's word and the ways that they are not living up to it. And more than that, no doubt as Jesus taught, he was doing what he so often did. He was making claims about himself. That would have been offensive to any Jew who didn't recognize him as God in the flesh. And so you can understand then why these people were offended at him. You can understand then why instead of welcoming him and celebrating him as this hometown boy come home to visit, they're offended at what he's saying and what he's teaching. They're offended because familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. It's a saying for a reason. Because think about this in our own context. We know what this is like. We know this. If a famous Christian author or speaker were to come to Columbia Christian Church and to speak and to tell us all about the sin in our lives and our need to repent, we would honor that message and agree with it wholeheartedly. But what if my wife comes to me and says the same thing? I get defensive, right? 
I start coming up with all these excuses for myself. Married folks, you know this happens all the time. For those of you who are married, this happens all the time, doesn't it? Your spouse tells you one thing, and then you blow it off. And then someone from the outside says the same thing, and you accept it as true. Does it not happen all the time? You do it, not just your spouse, you do it too, right? Teenagers, young adults, you know what this is like. Your parents say one thing, and you blow it off. And then one of your friends says the same thing. Or you hear it from a, a famous sports figure in an interview, and then you say something like, well, yeah, that's, that's really the truth. That sure is right. When you blew it off when your parents said it, right? This happens to us all the time because familiarity breeds contempt. It's true. It's human nature. It's a saying for a reason. Perhaps on a more serious note, do not be shocked. Do not be surprised if your own family members don't want to hear anything from you about Jesus. If your own family members don't want to hear you speak about your faith. They don't want to listen to your beliefs. Often it can be easier to talk to a complete stranger about Christ than it can to our own family members. Notice what Jesus says in verse 4. Verse 4. Kind of a proverb from his mouth, if you will. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. We know from John chapter 7 that while Jesus was going about doing his ministry, his own brothers didn't believe in him. His own brothers did not believe in him. In fact, we've already seen in previous chapters in the book of Mark, if you remember, we've already seen times when Jesus' family felt inconvenienced by him and his ministry, embarrassed by him and his ministry. At one point, they were all saying he's out of his mind. In Luke's account of this story, the same story accounted in Luke, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue. He does the scripture reading. And they give him the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61, that wonderful passage that says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And he, he goes on to say all the kinds of things that the Spirit of the Lord is empowering him to do and has called him to do. And he says, this scripture today has been fulfilled in your hearing, because that scripture in Isaiah 61 was all about Jesus and initially, in Luke's account, initially it says they all spoke well of him. But as he kept teaching, he confronted them with the word of God. He confronted their sin. He was not okay to leave them where they were. That's one thing about Jesus. If you really pay attention to Jesus, Jesus is not okay to leave people where they are. He confronts them exactly where they need to be confronted. Think of the rich young man who came to Jesus saying, what must I do to be saved? And eventually Jesus gets to the point to his heart idol, if you will, and says, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And it made the rich young man walk away sad because he loved his possessions more than he loved God. Jesus is not content with just leaving people where they are. So in Luke 4, he pushes you can go read this for yourself sometime. He pushes with his teaching. He's not content to just have everybody speak well of him. And by the end of it, Luke 4, 28 says this. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They took offense, just like here in Mark. They were filled with wrath, and it says they rose up, and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
but passing through their midst, he went away. They're so offended at his teaching. This is in his hometown. People who have seen him grow up, they're ready to kill him. They're ready to throw him off a cliff. Why? Well, we've seen it throughout the Gospels. People think Jesus is teaching blasphemy. The Jews, good Jews, are thinking, this man is blaspheming. And in the Old Testament, blasphemy before the Lord was punishable by death. And so they seek to put him to death, but it says Jesus slipped through their midst. How does that even happen? We're not told, really, but we know it wasn't his time. So the Lord prevented them from killing him on that day. Now this passage right here, when Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, this is a very personal one for me, for me personally. Because when I was in seminary years ago, I was about two-thirds of the way through my seminary degree. We had just had our, our son, our firstborn, Owen. We had just had him. And, and all of a sudden, I receive the blessing of being called to be the youth minister at the church where I grew up. We were living in Lexington. I'm from Owensboro. I received this call to be the youth minister at the church where I grew up. I'm so excited about it. We're, we're real excited about going home. Our firstborn child was just born. We can be around our parents. That's a big deal, especially at that time of life. Well, I go to my, my seminary dean, Dr. Johnny Presley, and I, I sit down and I say, is there any way that I can finish this seminary degree kind of like long distance? Can I do some independent study? Can I maybe come here for some intensive? And he was like, yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll take care of it. They were so gracious. But then he said, but John, have, have you thought about Jesus's words in the gospels? A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you're going home. You're going to do ministry in your hometown. It's, it's challenging. And I, I just blew it off. I was like, it'd be fine. These people love me. Right? Well, I go home, I do ministry there, and in one sense it was fine. In one sense it was beautiful. The, the people there were gracious and good to us. They were patient with me through my immaturity and through my, my growth. But there was also a sense in which I would stand up on a Sunday morning and give a sermon and then go out back and greet people as they, they leave. And they'd, they'd come through and they'd say, oh, that was, that was such a nice sermon, John. And it was almost like they were squeezing my cheeks when they were saying it. Right? How cute you got up there and preached a sermon to us. This is adorable. I remember when you were, were, were getting potty trained. This is, this is great. You know? And there was, there was a sense in which you stand up to preach God's word. And you, you understand the weight of it. And it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And it's not a knock on any of those people. They were wonderful and they loved us. But it kind of went in one ear and out the other because this is John. This is Scott and Jackie's boy. We know him. Right? And I never realized the difference, really, until I came here. Four years ago, I come here. And what happens when I come here? Well, nobody knows me except that, well, this is the minister, right? He's, he's the minister. That's all that people knew me. That's the only way people knew me. And so when, when that happens, all of a sudden, it carries a little bit more weight. It, it actually does. Because the only way people knew me was as a minister, as a man of God, whereas there people knew me as... That, that little bratty kid, or that, you know, Scott and Jackie's boy. And so Jesus says very perceptively, and I've seen this work out in my own life, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, in his own household. Now I want to 
leave us from here, I want to leave us with two warnings. Two warnings that I want you to take away with you on this very topic today. The first warning is this. Beware of the human tendency to dismiss or even despise biblical counsel from those closest to you. Beware of the human tendency to dismiss or even despise biblical counsel from those who are closest to you or from those whom you're familiar with. Perhaps it's a spouse. Perhaps it's a a grown child. Perhaps it's a parent. Perhaps it's someone locally who, who you've watched grown up. Beware of our tendency to do this. We hear biblical counsel from someone close to us and we dismiss it. Why? Because familiarity. Familiarity breeds contempt. We dismiss it because we've always known them. But the counsel itself, objectively, the words that they are saying are biblical and true and things that we need to hear. Beware of that human tendency to dismiss it just because it comes from someone you know and someone you're familiar with. But number two... A second warning here. Beware of becoming so familiar with Jesus that you domesticate him. Beware of becoming so familiar with Jesus that you domesticate him. You no longer let him make you uncomfortable. Instead, he becomes your nice little security blanket or teddy bear Jesus. Right? We carry him around to help us to feel good, but he's not really doing much more than that. Beware that tendency because Jesus can get so familiar, especially for those of us who've grown up in church, especially from those of us who've grown up in a place like Columbia, Kentucky, Bible Belt, America. You know, Jesus is spoken of all over the place around these parts. And being in church on a Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, kind of gets you points sometimes with family and in the community. Beware of getting so familiar with Jesus that you've domesticated him. And you no longer let him make you feel uncomfortable. You no longer let him confront you of sin. No longer let him drive you to repentance. And he's no longer making demands of you, or at least you're not allowing that to happen. You just keep him around to make you feel good about yourself. To check that box, I've done my religious duty for the week, so that we can say we're a Christian family. This is a particular danger in a place like this. So beware of it, brothers and sisters. You can become so familiar with Jesus that you domesticate him. And so Jesus' ministry offended them. His ministry offended them. But on the other hand, their belief amazed him. You see that in verse 6? Verse 6, it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. What an indictment of a place and a people group that their unbelief was so strong and their hearts were so hard, it made Jesus himself marvel. This is a serious indictment of these people. It is quite rare to see Jesus marvel at anything. You'll you'll find it a couple places in Scripture, but it is rare to see Jesus marvel at anything. I mean, think about it. He's Jesus. He's so wise. He's so knowledgeable. Was he ever truly surprised at anything? Many of the things that we marvel at, Jesus told us to expect. Many of the things that we're marveling at today, Jesus said, no, you should just expect that. 
Don't be surprised at it. And yet here we find him, Jesus, marveling at their unbelief. Other translations say their unbelief amazed him. It amazed him, their unbelief. Could there be a stronger indictment of a group of people than that? I can think of a few people I have known over the years that were so even keel all the time that if I saw them panic, I would start thinking it's time to start panicking, right? If I saw them panicking, even if I wasn't panicked before, I'd be like, I I guess I should panic too because they never panic, right? You ever know anybody like this? Somebody so even keeled, they're never worried that if you see them worried, even if you're not worried, you think, I I guess I better start worrying because they are. I didn't know I was supposed to start feeling like this, but I, I think this is more serious than I realized because they're so even keeled all the time. That's Jesus here. That's Jesus. He marvels at their unbelief. Look at verse 5. I find verse 5 fascinating. It says, He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. The implication is this has something to do with their unbelief. He could do no mighty work there. Why? Why was that? That he could do no mighty work there. Did their their unbelief render Jesus powerless? Did he simply choose not to do miracles there? Kind of like saying, I just can't. I just can't bring myself to do that here for these people. Throughout the Gospels, when you read Jesus' miracles and his healings, when he heals someone, you often hear him say something like what we heard last week, what we heard him say to the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Look in your Bibles with me, if you will, at Mark 5, 34. Just back just a little bit. Mark 5, verse 34. After the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touches the hem of his garment, it says she's instantly healed of her, her disease. And verse 34, Jesus turns to her and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And we often read that and we think, wait a second, I thought Jesus made her well, but Jesus says your faith has made you well. And it's not the only time Jesus says that. Jesus will say that on numerous occasions to people, your faith has made you well. Lots of other people touched Jesus in that crowd, right? And the the disciples are like, when he asked who touched me, the disciples are laughing because everybody touches him. But power only went out from him when someone touched him in faith. So part of this, in Mark 6 here, part of this, I think, means their lack of faith was indeed hindering God's power. Their lack of faith was indeed hindering God's power. Not only does people's faith make them well when Jesus heals them, it works in reverse as well. A lack of faith can prevent Jesus from healing and making people well. It is not as though God is not powerful to do all things, but it's, it's the way he's set up the world to work. In his wisdom, it's the way he has ordained things to happen. Now, it, it's very important not to twist this into false doctrine. Very important not to twist this into false doctrine. We say, and we, we believe, I think we should, their unbelief hindered God's power. But many people today teach a form of the prosperity gospel that sounds much like this. And they say the reason you don't have miracles in your church is because you don't have enough faith. The reason you're not getting healed of your disease is you don't have enough faith. 
The reason you don't have health and wealth is because you don't have enough faith. Increase your faith and God will do it. Years ago, one of the saddest outworkings of this false teaching I have ever seen happened at a church out in California. A couple lost their little baby girl, their two-year-old girl, to sudden death. She was just two. And based on the teaching of their pastor, they and the church around them refused to believe that she was going to stay dead. For one horrible week, they tried to muster up enough faith to bring about this little two-year-old girl's resurrection. They refused to bury her. They refused to hold a funeral. And they had been taught that if you simply believe strongly enough and ask for something with enough faith, God would be required to grant it. But they were disappointed. And after one week, finally, they admitted she was gone and they began to grieve the loss of their sweet little girl. It's one of the saddest outworkings of this idea that you'll ever see. But that's what this teaching falsely turned into and twisted into some false doctrine. That's what this can do. Because there does seem to be an element here in the story that the unbelief of these people hindered the miracle working power of God. There does seem to be an element of that here. But that does not mean that if you muster up enough faith that you can force God's hand. We can never force God's hand. We can never dictate terms to God. I was helped greatly in studying this passage by a man named Mark Jones in one of his books that he wrote called Knowing Christ. There he makes a compelling case that in Jesus' time on earth, all of Jesus' miracles were done not by his inherent power, but by the Holy Spirit empowering him in those moments. Now follow me here. He's saying that Jesus didn't do miracles by the power that was inherent within him. That he was always walking around with the ability to do a miracle at any time. No, he did miracles every time he did a miracle. It was through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Because when Jesus became a human, Philippians 2.7 says he emptied himself. He emptied himself when he came earth he became a human truly and fully not a fake human but a real one with all of our weaknesses and just as the holy spirit empowered men normal men like moses or elijah or the apostles to do miracles just as the holy spirit empowered them to do miracles at times so he empowered jesus to do every miracle he performed and so here here why that helps is that this was simply a matter of the holy spirit not granting the power When verse 5 says he could do no mighty work there, he, he couldn't do it because the Holy Spirit wasn't granting it. Or you could say God was withholding it as a kind of judgment upon these people for their hard hearts and their unbelief. And I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Biblically, with everything we know biblically, that makes a whole lot of sense. That God was withholding the miracles as a kind of judgment upon these people for their hard hearts and their unbelief. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands, it says, on a few sick people and healed them. Brothers and sisters, understand this. God's power is not dependent upon you or the amount of faith that you have. You cannot force his hand in any way. 
You cannot dictate terms to him. But it is clearly a principle of life taught in Scripture that to receive the healing and the power of God, you must come to him with faith. To receive the healing and the power of God, you must come to him with faith. And those without faith do not receive those things. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God's power comes to those who come to him with faith. And his power and his favor and his healing are withheld from those who harden their hearts in unbelief. God's power comes to those who come to him in faith. But his power, his favor, his healing are withheld from those who harden their hearts in unbelief. And so the question then is, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Will you try to keep him at arm's length and treat him like a security blanket, like a teddy bear? Will you, like those in his hometown, become offended at his teaching when he presses in upon you and when he goes right for your heart and when he makes you uncomfortable? Or will you welcome his teaching and follow him no matter what, even when it convicts you of sin, even when he makes demands on you? In today's culture, we are seeing a dividing line Clearer and clearer by the month, it seems. A dividing line. And the the dividing line is this. Jesus is great and all until he says something that goes directly against the modern values of our culture. Jesus is well and good until he says something that attacks who I want to be. And then the question is, what do you do? We are seeing more and more what people do when Jesus confronts them. We are seeing more and more people come to understand the real Jesus with all of his words and all of his teaching cannot line up with the culture that we see out there. And so the question is, what are you going to do? Who are you going to go with? What side of the line are you going to be on? And many people are revealing their true colors in walking away from Christ when they start to realize, oh, he's not just a loving, accepting of all teacher. No, he's saying things that go directly against modern sensibilities, that go directly against the me I want to be. And when that happens, they walk away. And so that's the question for every single one of us, is if you take an honest look at Jesus, he's not going to let you sit there and stay where you are. He's not going to let you be comfortable in your life. He's going to make demands of you. He's going to call you to a level of holiness that you're not at right now. He's going to convict you of sin. And he's going to tell each and every one of us, if you do not pledge allegiance to me and give everything to me, you cannot come to God. You cannot get to heaven. You cannot be my disciple. So the question is, what side are you on? What side are you on? Are you going to walk away from him? Because he doesn't let you be who you've always wanted to be. Or will you follow him even when it hurts? Will you follow him to the bitter end? Knowing that it is for your own good. Knowing that the very end of it is paradise 
with him in heaven and with the Lord. That's the line that he's drawn in the sand this morning. Which side are you on? That's what I leave us with today. And right now, as Dwayne comes and plays just a little bit for us, we're going to take a few minutes, as we do each week, for individual response through prayer. We give these moments for you to pray. And we ask you to pray. We ask you to spend these moments dealing with the Lord, doing business with the Lord, as we sometimes say. Responding to what he has just laid on your heart in all of the the uncomfortableness, all of the, the demands that he might make on you. Each one of us needs to respond in a different way probably than the person sitting right next to us. And so this is a good time for us all as individuals to go to the Lord and to speak with him after he has spoken with us. After we do this for a few moments, we'll come back and there may be those who need to respond to God's word in a public way. But right now, let's all respond in private.